The timeline, so they say, is June 1st. Now, government doesn't shut down because revenues are still coming in. And so you can use those revenues accordingly. And so, uh, but we do face the, the, the prospect of default, however you define it. I define it as payment of, of treasuries, principal, and interest. They define it as the payment on time of every obligation the federal government has ever made. And therein lies the debate. Uh, but that X date, that moment of, of the inability to, to uh, be able to move forward without a higher debt limit is what this is the timing of this all. And Janet Yellen said it will be June 1st. She added some wiggle room and said, I'm not sure that's exactly where it is. And I would say it is certainly not June 1st. Uh, but she's playing politics because the gnomes at the Treasury Department are scared out of their mind because they don't want have to they don't want to have to choose between what gets paid in in a triage. They don't in that sense don't want to be politicians. They want the gravy train to keep going on, and they want basically a, a massive get out of jail free card from a fiscal standpoint. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and today it is just me, which is especially unusual because this is our first one-on-two podcast. Uh, we've done two-on-two before, and this is our first one-on-two. Um, uh, that sounds bad, but I promise it's it's normal. Uh, we had on today uh, two dear friends of ours, Russ Vogt uh, and Dan Caldwell. Uh, as you guys might know, Russ was the head of the Office of Management and Budget when President Trump took office. He served as the acting director and then as the 42nd director of OMB for nearly two years. He was a member of the president's cabinet and was responsible for overseeing the implementation of the president's policy, management, and deregulatory agendas across the executive branch. After he uh, left the Trump administration when it ended. Obviously, he went on to found the Center for Renewing America and Citizens for Renewing America, uh, two sister organizations that are doing fantastic work here in D.C. on a variety of issues. Dan uh, is the vice president at Center for Renewing America. He's been on previously in another role. He actually recently joined there um, and uh, is now the vice president at CRA, where he has been integral in helping them scale up everything that they're doing, but specifically also a ton of the great work that they're now doing on foreign policy. Um, we had them on to talk about the fight that is animating DC right now, which is the question of this debt ceiling. Um, we talked about what exactly it is, what's going on, what is Russ's approach to this issue, how we can defund woke and weaponized government without touching Social Security and Medicare, and actually go about starting to unwind the security state that uh, is hurting everyday Americans. Basically, I, I play devil's advocate and just ask them um, for all the details on everything that's going on. Um, and they they did a fantastic job in telling us about it. We have some fun, especially towards the end, talking about the security state in D.C., um, about whether like left-right alliances on these issues can actually work and much, much more. I highly recommend that you guys listen to the end. Follow everything that Center for Renewing America is doing at americarenewing.com. Uh, be sure to follow both Russ and Dan on Twitter. Their Twitter game is on point. Um, and uh, their entire team, really, uh, Rachel Semmel, Kings Cortez, um, their fellows, Adam Candube, Jeff Clark, etc. They're just, they're just a fantastic team that they've got there. Um, so we'll go now to Russ and Dan. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Good to be back. 
It's very exciting to have both of you here today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dan uh, recently joined the Merry Band of Pirates over at Center for Renewing America and is working to help level up everything that you guys are doing. And, and boy, have you guys been doing a lot. There's a lot I want to get to in this episode. But first, let's rewind a little bit and talk about what you guys did uh, right at the beginning of the year as uh, it was very clear that the Republican conference in the House had a much smaller majority than it expected. Um, turns out that you guys and a bunch of members in the House had been preparing for such an eventuality. Tell me the story. Sure. I mean, I think it's one of the most uh, unreported stories in Washington, D.C., the extent to which coalition government emerged in the House, really for the first time in a long time. But I would say in 60 years, we haven't seen the backbench empowered to the degree that it was. And like you said, it came about because the margins for Kevin McCarthy were not high after what was supposed to be a red wave. And you have different possibilities when you don't produce. And that gave us a chance to frame a vision for what the House could be. And that is to no longer treat House conservatives as if they're backbench, but as a junior partner. If you went to Israel or you went to Germany, you know, your your populace would understand what coalition government is. And when Kevin McCarthy became speaker, and I had wanted a paradigm shifting speaker, but I wanted a paradigm shifting result more. He had to agree to terms, a power sharing agreement that ceded actual power to a junior partner. Now, do they have all the power in the world? No, he has a lot of power that remains. But what is different is you have a unified leadership team that has independent leadership and power beyond just one leadership team that's together, they go behind closed doors, a leadership meeting, speaker makes a decision and you go out and that's what you do. And everyone else kind of salutes. What's different now is that the rules committee has three independent rules committee and that's a paradigm shift for the first time since speaker Sam Rayburn. Mm -hmm. The appropriations committee has new independent members that make decisions not based on what Kay Granger thinks. And so I call it kind of Old Testament versus New Testament, right? Everything that became possible in a new way needs to be re reinterpreted on the basis of the power sharing agreement. And people are surprised in the events of the last few weeks, Kevin McCarthy being able to pass a big bill with a slim majority. It's not surprising to me because of that agreement. But if you agree, if you look back and you say, oh, it's just, you know, he just, uh, finagled a couple members and gave them some concessions, you still don't really understand the world that we're living in. And that's what changed in, in January. And it has put us on the on the path to being able to make real fights, real fights, and not theatrical fights. So I want to talk about those two examples in particular that you brought up, the Rules Committee and the Appropriations Committee. That's a that's a how and a what uh, committee, respectively, it feels like. Why, why is that number so important? Three um, you know, Freedom Caucus or Freedom Caucus adjacent members on on Rules Committee. What exactly does that change in terms of the topography and the landscape of how uh, the House actually works? They're the two most important committees as it pertains to the cartel. And whether you're talking about House members or Tucker, Carl Tucker Carlson or what whatever uh, policy issue you care about in D.C., it's a cartel, which is one member, one person, one organization if they accurately state truth, they have the ability to puncture that consensus that is artificially constructed to de-risk the world that we're living in, right? And so that's that's my thesis of how DC works, is that the cartel wants things off the floor of the House. 
They want everything behind closed doors. And then they come very, very rarely, once or twice a year with, you know, a must pass bill, your debt limit bill, your funding bill, your defense authorization bill. And they don't give it members any time to read it and they just pile drive it. That's the cartel having to occasionally govern the way the founders intended for it to be. And so when you unpack that procedurally, the two committees that it's most important is appropriations that are the spending and rules which defines every procedure that the House does. And John Dingell once said, if I give you policy and you give me procedure, I'll beat you every time. And so to the extent that you have independent members that don't just do what Kevin McCarthy does or wants him to do, they have to be okay with that. Uh, you now have independence and the opportunity to have backbenchers now with real power to control whatever comes to the floor. And that's really what the terms of that arrangement, that relationship was was manifested in, in the power sharing agreement. Now, there is a slightly different but but very meaningfully consequential different version of this that plays out. Uh, in decades past, right? Which if, if you're calling this new model coalition government, I, I might call the previous model assimilation, where occasionally, you know, one or two publicly, um, you know, conservative members get sort of assimilated into leadership uh, in the House or Senate or in any uh, bureaucracy in D.C. And, and their sort of uh, their credibility with the base is used to provide gloss to what is otherwise a very similar agenda. Why, why is that not what's happening here? Or what structurally is different to prevent that from happening? What is structurally is the terms by which it was agreed to, right? It's not, hey, I'm going to run a leadership election at Republican conference or secretary level, which is a meaningless position. Mm -hmm. And you get invited to the meeting and no one largely cares that you're there. Yeah. You know, you're literally there to just bless whatever the speaker comes up with behind closed doors. What is different about this is that they actually have their own power and it was negotiated on the terms that they would be independent. Now, where could it go wrong? That's in the the beholder of that, the secure person, the person who brings that that to the table, in themselves has to remember this. I'm independent of leadership, and so I have to make a decision on the basis of this is an independent coalition style government. If they go into it and say, "Well, I'm just going to get behind closed doors and agree with whatever Kevin McCarthy thinks," and yeah, mm -hmm. it could go wrong. But what's different about this is the independent aspect of it and the degree to which it was consciously negotiated that way, uh, almost as if you were were having a House Freedom Caucus member um, that you would just cede a certain procedural power to. Yeah. So walk me through what the terms of that negotiation was. Um, you know, the, the, this group of 20 members um, were sort of eclectic. They, they came from different ideological tendencies, all of them sort of united in, in wanting to fight. They, they've always been known to be sort of out there members in terms of taking a different stand, but but from very different ideological tendencies. So what what, what exactly were the terms of that negotiation and, and some of the key items there? Well, I, I kind of grouped them into big three big buckets. Number one, the first bucket is that the emergence of coalition government, and that is largely, you know, the regime press like to say, well, them being, you know, trying to get their own power. To some extent, yes. Like they're members of Congress. They're, they're members of Congress. <laughs> yeah. And and this gets to the central issue in, in that it was never about not being willing to govern. It was about a different art view of the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a conservative that comes to Congress, you have a different view of the art of the po of what can be accomplished than leadership that has been mm -hmm. there for thirty or forty years. And 
this is an acknowledgement that those with a different non-cartel art of the possible will be given real power. And it really gets to the committee assignments. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing out there that defines this. It is the committee assignments and the terms by which those committee assignments were given and accepted mm -hmm. in terms of you talk to these members and they didn't they didn't say, hey, I'm not I'm going to I'm going to vote for all your appropriations bills out of committee or I'm going to vote for every rule on the floor. None of those uh, constraints were agreed to or articulated, and that's big. The, the second one we'll end up, probably end up talking about is the, the degree to which the power sharing agreement itself set up the key fights for the year. So we're going to have a big fight on the debt limit. We're going to have a big fight at a low spending level that allows us to go after the weaponized bureaucracy that exists. Uh, we're going to uh, be able to, to, to structure this in a way that gets to a, a win. And then the third would be the creation of the Select Committee Against Weaponization of Government. And that is something that Jim Jordan is running. Those are kind of the crown jewels of what I thought was a transformative agreement. But there's all sorts of things beneath those that are things like how the House should operate, time to review bills. Uh, all of those are important. And all of them are enforced both by the new power that the members have themselves, but also the sort of Damocles that exists in the form of what most people would think of as a vote of no confidence, your motion to vacate. And that was restored from the pre-Paul Ryan days. Uh, so that that's really the extent of it. And you know, I always wonder, was it written down? These are understandings that um, were agreed to and allows the members that were courageous and convictional to negotiate them to have new power that we, we, we see the fruit of uh, even as it manifests itself over time. So, Dan, I want to ask you, you know, in terms of the art of the possible, there's the limitations on on thinking um, within Congress that's historically existed. But I would say that that pales in comparison to the limitations that exist outside of Congress in the sort of nonprofit political advocacy world in D.C. I don't want Russ to brag on himself, so I'll ask you to brag on Russ. I think everyone recognized how unusual it was that there was a prominent conservative organization advocating for such a dissident perspective um, prior to it going the way it did. Um, why is that a big deal? And what are the forces that that typically make it so that no organization would ever do anything like that? So earlier you said that um, I joined the Center for Newing America to help level them up. And I got to be honest with you, I joined at the tail end of the speaker's fight. And I felt like I was joining a Super Bowl championship team in the fourth, <laughs> fourth quarter of the game where they were ahead. I mean, there is no other organization in Washington, D.C. right now that is having the type of impact the Center for Newing America is on the policy debate. And that's not to disparage anybody else. Uh, that's not to say that my previous organizations, Stand Together and Concerned Veterans for America, weren't having a positive impact. I believe they were, particularly around changing the conversation on foreign policy and uh, how we care for our nation's veterans. But what Russ and the team at CRA have done is effectively show the art of the possible, what can be done in this current political environment. And there's a lot of great organizations right now um, within the current conservative nonprofit space. There's a lot of organizations that are waking up to the fact that what has worked previously doesn't work now in the current moment. And they're changing and they're evolving. But there's still a lot of organizations that still think it's 2011 or 2009 or 2014. And they want to pretend that there wasn't a Trump administration. There wasn't COVID. That the government has not become significantly more weaponized against the American people. And what they want to do is, is they want to rerun the same failed playbook 
from prior to President Trump. And look, I got to be honest with you, I was part of the groups that ran that playbook. I don't want to speak for Russ, but I, I think you would probably say the same thing. And a lot of people have not learned and adapted from that. They haven't learned about what has happened. I think how Russ sums it up, Old Testament versus New Testament, far too many groups have not absorbed that. I think we at Center for Renewing America have, and as a result, have been able to have an impact on a lot of these issues in a way that others haven't. One of the elements uh, that Dan just touched on here is, is you know, that 2011-2014 that era, even the right wing of the right wing operated differently during that era. Russ, how would you describe the tactical differences in agreement that you guys have today with suppose a version of what maybe you and your friends would have been doing in 2013, 14, you know, early Tea Party days? What, what, what's changed there? I mean, it's it's in many cases, a lot of the same players, people who really stuck their neck out, but but it does feel like there is a very different tactical mindset undergirding that. What's What's been that that process of, of of change like. Yeah, my assessment of kind of pre-2016 is that the leaders on the right, even the anti-establishment right, were not aligned with their own base. Yeah. So they could be on an issue like a amnesty or some parts of Obamacare, but you look at Export-Import Bank, and we picked this enormous fight, I think to some extent uh, on valid you know, favoritism for non-grounds. But the idea that that was a top 30 issue for anyone in the country doesn't pass the laugh test. And so you have the entirety of the right focusing on that issue for two years. Yeah. And it's like how they always are obsessed about the Jones Act. It's like they're all getting paid a lot of money to obsess about the Jones Act. So you've got this dynamic where your leaders on the right are not necessarily being statesmen in their landscape uh, uh, understanding of what must be done to save the country. 2016 comes, I think. Donald Trump is a shock to the post-war consensus on both the left and the right. And as the, for the first time, you have the issues being fought on are aligned with the actual base. And when we set up the organization, we wanted to make sure that, that, that there was an institution that furthered that to make sure that you know we're focusing on for God, for country, for community, that nationalism, uh, strong borders. Uh, changing those paradigms that would otherwise get you called a racist or a bigot because you were against that post-war consensus. And we've effectively been, I think the easiest way to think about it is the left and right have been on the same river. And one's ahead of each other on, you know, economic deregulation versus cultural deregulation, but it's the same river. And we wonder why at the end of that river, we get tax cuts and gay marriage. <laughs> it's because it's the same river. Yeah. And so there's some parts of it. Well, I like the tax cuts, you know, but I want to know, like, why is at the end of that river, are we on the cusp of tyranny? It's because no one has had the height to recognize that that notion of that consensus and getting us off the river is the most important thing that we could do. So totally agree with you. Uh, one thing that that people might criticize then in this uh, environment we find ourselves in right now is why is the first giant fight about the debt ceiling? I, I thought we're done with fiddling around the yeah. edges on fiscal stuff. Why is this the first major place where this coalition government is actually going to be tested? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question if you're coming in front from the standpoint of the new right, right? And that is, but I, I would reject the notion that we don't actually care about spending because mm -hmm. I look at spending as what funnel, fuels big government and the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And I... I don't think there's enough conservatives in the world 
to be able to make sure that the bureaucracies are staffed out with America first people. Mm -hmm. And I look at the bureaucracies from what I saw, and it's not the Department of Education, it's the Department of Critical Race Theory. And Mm -hmm. you grant by grant, and you realize we're funding cultural Marxists to be our teachers to turn them our kids into more cultural Marxists. And we saw what that occurs, what that looks like in 2020 when they're burning our cities down and tearing our monuments down. So heading into this, head, towards the end of this last year, we put out a budget. And the central thing about this budget that I was preoccupied with is how do you take the fiscal crisis that I do believe exists largely unsexy to the new right world and the America first perspective, but it does exist. And how do you ensure that that is going to deal at the same time of what I would think is the number one issue for a statesman right now, which is this woke and weaponized regime and to fuse those indelibly so that you are saving money while you are defunding the department of critical race theory. And you are going after the regime through the purse strings and using the leverage point. Why the debt limit? It's the leverage point that we have in front of us. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to use the the opportunities that are in front of you to be able to serve your interests accordingly. And so if you were to say, we're going to have a nationwide conversation for the next year and we're not going to talk about woke and weaponized bureaucracy, that would be a missed opportunity, a massive missed opportunity. And I'm a little worried about it, to be honest with you. You know, you hear the messaging of Kevin McCarthy and others, and they're talking just about negotiations and, you know, artificial levels of, of debt. Right. That concerns me, and I'm pushing on that. But at the same time, the terms of what they have passed out of the House are serving our interest to go after a bureaucracy that would make any of us go away uh, if they could do it at scale. So let's get granular here. What exactly is this quote-unquote debt ceiling fight? What is the procedural reality of what's about to happen? And why is it this opportunity to to do stuff along the lines of what you talked about here? It is fundamentally an effort to cut the spending of agencies that people have uh, dealings with, right? Mm-hmm. So we got it away from Social Security mm-hmm. and Medicare, which is where all the budget eggheads wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we focused it squarely on the annual appropriations process that is used to fund the bureaucracy. And we set it at a a level. It's pre-COVID levels. But if you protect certain things like veterans and homeland security, you know, the border, the the border version, you're going to be at 20% cut to where we are last year. And most agencies are looking at 30% cut. So think about that Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services. did agencies really get a 30% budget increase during the COVID years? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the, and, and some of it is a larger amount because you're having to go deeper uh, when you are protecting some places, but that is going to require significant trade-offs to be able to go after where I think are the most weaponized parts. And it's, you know, EPA, it's, uh, they put a 77-year-old Navy veteran in jail for 18 months for building four ponds on his wild on his land to fight wildfires. So people want to be for a clean energy, you know, clean environment. I want to be for a clean environment. That's not what you're getting when you fund EPA. They're all Marxists. They're all militant, and we've got to defund them. And by putting this 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 level of spending that's set so low. And then capping it, we have the ability to crush the bureaucracy through the funding. And then it goes after some other things like the IRS expansion and things like that. So uh, I think it's a major opportunity. Um, 
and I, you know, I hope they continue to hold strong. Walk me through the the ticky tacky of what exactly the procedural questions at play here are. Like, what 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 is the debt ceiling, and how does that create this opportunity to do stuff, and and what's the timeline? Uh, the timeline, so they say, is June first, and what happens on and, June first? So. Uh, unlike a end of the, a fiscal year where you have appropriations that sunset and you can't fund certain portions of the government that are not on autopilot, in a debt limit situation, you have the need to be able to take on new debt because you have a deficit. Mm-hmm. And you are up against a statutory limitation on your ability to do that. Now, government doesn't shut down because revenues are still coming in. And so you can use those revenues accordingly. And so uh, but we do face the, the the prospect of default, however you define it. I define it as payment of, of Treasury's principal and interest. They define it as the payment on time of every obligation the federal government has ever made. And therein lies the debate. Uh, but that X date, that moment of of the inability to, to uh, be able to move forward without a higher debt limit is what this is the timing of this all. And Janet Yellen said it will be June 1st. She added some wiggle room and said, I'm not sure that's exactly where it is. And I would say it is certainly not June 1st. Uh, But she's playing politics because the gnomes at the Treasury Department are scared out of their mind because they don't want have to they don't want to have to choose between what gets paid in in a triage. They don't in that sense, don't want to be politicians. They want the gravy train to keep going on. And they want basically a, a massive get out of jail free card from a fiscal standpoint. So um, this will play out over the you know between now and June and, and potentially into mid June. Um, and at the end of the day, like I said, Joe Biden, Secretary Yellen, have the ability to make sure that that revenues that coming in is more than enough to pay for that Treasury uh, principal and interest, and make sure we don't have an actual default. And then we can debate as a broke country. What's getting paid on what time frame? And I would argue I want to have a debate about, you know, a couple of millions of dollars that NIH is spending on gain of function research. That's the debate that I want to have with the country. I want to debate the extent to which HUD is being used to break up single family neighborhoods. That's a debate I want to have. And we can and we will be able to do that over the over the summer. I I want to add that, unfortunately, too many Republicans and so-called budget hawks have bought into this narrative that, you know, June 1st, the world falls apart. The default is a real threat. And it's led us to a place where we have not had the debate that Russ is bringing up here. And I'd just like to, again, kind of going back in time, um, you had a lot of Republicans and conservative and even libertarian budget hawks that started to say around 2015, 2016, we shouldn't even be talking about discretionary spending. It's only mandatory spending, particularly focused on entitlements like Social Security and Medicare. They didn't want to talk about, you know, the Department of CRT. They didn't want to talk about HUD. They wanted just to narrowly focus it on these core entitlement programs that are very popular, that, you know, there has not been a a ability to actually move any reforms to them. So they wanted to keep running the same old spending playbook where they start to debate off by saying we need to focus only on Social Security and Medicare. They lose the fight um, before it even began, and you'd still get this march of increasing debt, a growth of a woke and weaponized bureaucracy, and you know further threats to our financial future. And what they reveal themselves as is fundamentally not serious about reforming 
our country's budget, significantly cutting spending, or recognizing the political reality and the actual opportunities at play. So I I, I want to delve a little bit more into that that difference between old guard budget hawks versus the strategy that you guys are proposing because um again you know showing my cards here uh, i find those old guard budget hawks to be extremely annoying and politically dangerous right like you're gonna get ads of grandma getting thrown off a building all the live long day if the core message of the republican party and the conservative movement is we want to cut social security and medicare putting aside the fact that social security is actually a pretty well-designed program in terms of dollars in dollars out medicare is much less so um what is the the argument um between you guys and the old guard budget hawks on how we get back to fiscal sanity um and and how we should prioritize um where cuts are made so we have failed as a budget community for 20 years. There hasn't been a massive, uh, we had some wins, you know, during the Obama years, but they were uh, thrown over the board for some political reasons we can get into. But we haven't had a big budget agreement since 1997. Uh, so there's a long track re- record of futility. And my assessment of that futility for the reasons for it is because of a focus on Social Security and Medicare. So if you didn't wake up in the morning and focus on Social Security, Medicare, and you couldn't go to sleep with your head held high as a budget community. And what has that gotten you? It has gotten you, put aside the merits of the two programs and their unsustainability. What's that gotten you? It's gotten total failure. So it has also been part and parcel of a distraction away from the spending that is most dangerous to our community, which I believe is the bureaucracy. So I could put on the on on this table what I think are the most sustainable reforms to Medicare, and I won't even if if it had a magic wand it became law. Tomorrow we wouldn't be any more free. We would have the same bureaucracy that we're funding every year. You don't, by the way. Congress doesn't have an annual vote on it. They have an annual vote on appropriations. So they're focusing on what they don't have a vote on to the exclusion of the more damaging stuff they do have a vote on. And the budget community says, oh, this is great. You know, at some point, the bondholders are going to force everyone into the room and we'll have Social Security cuts. And I just think it's a whole game that has that has failed. And we now have the the the, the woke culture that we see that's been funded by the federal government. It has been a funder, not just a, a, a conveyor belt of it. And we're responsible for that. And you look at the budget community and you're like, well, why, why are you so, why do you care so much about Social Security and Medicare? I understand the, the insolvency issues. I'm not denying it. Okay. Wh- why do you care? And then you look at their bios on Twitter and they got the Ukraine flag <laughs> and they've got the rainbow. Yeah. And you really come to to the realization that they don't think it's 1159 in yeah. this country. They think it's the same old country. This is Ronald Reagan's country. This is this is the 19th. Like they don't. They, there's no urgency. They don't. They don't see the cultural things that we do of the 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 problems in our country mm-hmm. and say there's anything wrong with that. You know, uh, and that I think is the tell for why they have devised a strategy that is ultimately futile from their own perspective, but avoids things that they kind of like. They kind of like the the CRT movement. They kind of like the fact that we have this structure where any conversation about appropriations must mean there'll be less money for defense. 
which is another reason why you should like it as well. There'd be potentially less money for defense, and that might mean we don't have the same ability to fight in Ukraine that would cause us to be able to confront China, which is more of our interest. So you get to see the kind of shell games that go on within the cartel when these kinds of strategic trade-offs are made. And now I'll just go back to one thing you asked about earlier, and that is why the debt limit? The cartel is a reality that exists. And because the it takes all of the legislating off the floor, it only preserves certain must-pass bills that if you don't use them, mm -hmm. you're not going to do anything on the floor of the House and the Senate. So we can have a debate about does the debt limit be used for this or versus something else? That's fine. But the notion that you're going to fight on a probes and you're going to fight on debt limit and you're going to fight on the defense authorization bills, that if you don't fight on those, you're not fighting on anything. You know, I... I have to say too, there's an element of laziness here. And you saw a lot of criticism of the work that Russ did and Center for New America did in their budget, which was a huge project. Russ and the team put in a lot of effort to it. And a lot of people responding to it by saying, hey, look at this paper I wrote in 2017. <laughs> look, at, look at my budget proposal from yeah. 2015. Well, what's happened over the last Well, they had seven, a small army years. of like 30 research assistants that helped them put it together six years ago. And like they resent that you guys actually put together something timely in coordination with <laughs> right. the policy process in right. Congress. So it, yeah. it's, it's not wanting to sit down and yeah. say, okay, the world has changed. I need to adapt to it. Mm -hmm. And Russ is 100% right. There's a lot of people that fundamentally don't agree that we need to cut the woke and weaponized bureaucracy because candidly, they're they're comfortable with it. But there is this, this, this intellectual laziness that still is, you know, very prevalent in parts of the conservative nonprofit community. And it's just easier to say, oh, look at this thing I did in 2017 or my favorite. Let's do another commission. <laughs> like let's, when, when they and this is I, I think this is this is to me is the tell is that when you press them to say, OK, you think we should focus on Social Security and Medicare, a lot of them can't actually get in specifics or they don't want to. And so their thing is like, well, let's do another bipartisan commission because those have worked so well before. So for me, I, I think that's a large part that's of the criticism. thing they can add to their Twitter bio. hundred <laughs> percent. And yeah. so I think that's what drives a large part of the criticism of how we frame the fight is it's not really coming from an intellectually honest place. It's coming from an intellectually lazy place. Yeah, yeah June is for going on vacations. I can't be paying attention to what's going on oh, on the yeah. Hill every day. What are you talking about? I, I haven't to, been to Capitol Hill in 10 years. These I'm, guys I, I need to go live to across town. Yeah, um, there, there is, I think, a well, because you guys are throwing the curve in some ways, right? Like think tanks aren't supposed to be like in the trenches doing the stuff on a day to day basis, actually talking to members of Congress and like negotiating legislation. They caring should, about your interests, right. your political capital, husbanding yeah. it. Well, right. You know. No, you guys are supposed to put out one white paper every seven years. Yeah. That's that's what you guys are supposed to do on the issue. Um, you mentioned something there that I think is a very interesting shibboleth um, that uh, got a ton of attention right after um, the fight uh, to elect McCarthy, which is military spending. Um, this was instantly something the swamp like got all up in arms about, which is that you know we can't cut defense. You hate the troops. You hate the veterans. You hate the flag. Walk me through kind of what that process has been like, experiencing that immune response and and where the appetite and possibilities realistically are on the question of defense spending. So my experience is informed by my time at OMB of actually getting under the hood of capabilities and figuring out, okay, 
what capabilities do you actually need? What do we need to fund? Going around the actual military facilities and kicking the tires with generals and admirals and saying, you know, uh, how do you define readiness and things like that? And what I've come to the viewpoint of is our top line spendings are largely shell games. They are designed to just perpetuate bureaucracies mm -hmm. and no one actually cares about the capabilities that are needed. So that's why you could be in a situation where the whole military establishment is is saying now, I think rightfully, that we need to prepare for China. And yet they don't care about the the way that we are hurting ourselves by funding um, you know, military uh, uh, endeavors in Ukraine, nor do they actually care about this, having the capabilities needed to have a big fleet to be able to go after China. So you look at that and you're like, why? what explains that? And it's because they're, they're, the debates are captured by efforts to grow bureaucracy. So I believe when you have, when you allow a debate about capabilities, you can then talk about what do we need to fund and what don't we need to fund. And there's going to be trade-offs. We do not need as big an army as we did preparing for, for Soviet Union. Uh, we do need Air Force. We do need Navy components. We do need an active space component. Um, and so those are the capability conversations. And I've told all the members, I can give you a budget that grows depending on what we can afford, that's flat, that's cut, mm -hmm. and you will have all the capabilities you need. So stop thinking about it from the standpoint of someone who told you that defense needs to grow at an, at an artificial level based on the size of the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a totally inaccurate way to view need. And so stop thinking about that. That's a paradigm shift. As a, and focus, I, so I want to be really passionate about things I want to be passionate about because I think they're important and fade on areas where I don't think are as important and keep the funding on capability and we will be able to hit these numbers. And I think over time, I hope that we can train the national security establishment to get more and more uh, away from the bureaucrat budgeting and more fun talking and funding about capabilities. Because what do I want the American people to care about? What's actually going to keep us safe and not bureaucracies that, you know, perpetuate a military command system that goes out and has recruiting pledges uh, via drag queens. I mean, do we really want that 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 team making these kinds of decisions? And that's what is being funded through these artificial spending levels that have been insisted on by our, our hawks. I don't know if you have. How, how dare you question Admiral Levine? Um, Dan, this is where the fiscal issue rubs up against something that you've done a lot of work on, which is the foreign policy blob in D.C. Again, the, the legacy conservative movement was more than happy to have the, uh, as Russ calls them, propeller hack guys talking about cutting Social Security and Medicare on one side and being, quote unquote, fiscal hawks, while on the other side, it's like we will be at war everywhere at all times. Um, you guys are crossing the wires on it. You're saying, actually, we should look after look at discretionary spending we are overblown in terms of our foreign policy commitments abroad. How is that changing the sort of tactical approach on these fiscal issues? Well, I think that, again, going back in time, and, and this is talked a lot about in the immediate aftermath of the Budget Control Act in, in 2011, but it's really been throughout the last 100 years or so of American history is that there has been a key moments, this unholy alliance between uh, defense hawks and interventionists and basically progressives, big spending domestic progressives. And you've had this concept called the welfare warfare state. And you see during times of sustained war is that not only does the defense budget grow, but the non-defense bureaucracy. You saw that uh, in the lead up and during World War One, 
Uh, you saw that during World War II, or actually during World War II, the rate of growth of non-defense spending was greater than during the Great Depression. You saw that, of course, during Vietnam with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And there's just kind of this myth that, oh, the Vietnam War crimped the Great Society, it actually enabled it. And then again, uh, in- the what's, what's the mechanism by which that happens? Is it just that DC gets in the habit of spending more money? Is it, you know, people are more focused on the fight abroad, they don't pay attention to what their leaders are doing at home? What's the mechanism there, you think? It's that you have groups of elected officials that are are their top priority, whether it's it's domestic progressives, their top priority is growing the welfare state at home, and then you have, you know, so-called defense hawks whose, you know, primary concern is preserving, you know, the uh, liberal primacy abroad. And so the defense hawks get together with their, you know, normally center left progressives, and they agree to do things like you saw in the 2010s and blow to the, the both the non-discretionary defense and defense caps. So you get a defense budget increase and you get a discretionary budget increase. I think, though, there's kind of a deeper um, dynamic at play here. And I think that's the reality is, is that a lot of interventionists that are supposedly on the right really at their core are actually socially liberals. And this is kind of a theme you keep popping up throughout this conversation is that they're not really concerned about, you know, drag queen story hour that is effect being enabled by government funding in a lot of cases that you see a lot of the trans movement that's being um, funded and subsidized through programs like Medicaid. Um, they're not really bothered by that because their primary goal is to preserve liberal hegemony, you know, globally. And as I've said before in, in different American moment events is that Fundamentally, you've seen, again, not just recently, but throughout American history is liberal interventionism abroad is sustained and enabled by liberal interventionism at home. So that's how you get a lot of this, this spending that you see is that there's there's this kind of this myth that, you know, military spending cuts into social spending. You know, I, I remember right before 9-11 when I was vacationing out in California, you see all these bumper stickers said, you know, I, I can't wait to see the day where the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. Um, you know, it was kind of a, a, a jab at the fact that, you you know, the Department of Education is getting money, the Air Force is. Well, so the reality is, is normally both those things, you know, get more money at the same time. And really the only time in history where you didn't see that and you saw actual cuts in discretionary spending paired with increases in defense spending was Reagan's first term, but that didn't last. Yeah. It's very interesting because I think that a lot of this comes back to where the comfort zone for a lot of these Republican members is. And so when I think of your average Tea Party era politician, I think they were in two camps uh, while often converging on very similar goals. There were sort of a subset of them that were, were more fiery, more activist minded, more, I would say, populist in their tendencies. And then there were the set that were sort of if I'm being very mean, like basically like accountants, like they, they kind of just wanted to like come and like balance the books um, in, a, in a very sort of secular bloodless way. Um, and, you know, I I imagine that it was a lot easier to keep everyone on the same page when the terms of the discussion were purely a numbers game. But you guys are speaking to not just how much money we're spending, but what we're spending it on in terms of what that money does and what the actions of the government do to the American people. Has it been a challenge to get these members to start thinking in a more 
political way about the way our dollars are spent and and uh, have they learned to to exercise those muscles yet? No, it has been a challenge in that um, there there are lanes that people are comfortable in. And I would argue that from the grassroots perspective, this is always where the grassroots was. Sure. It was really the development of Tea Party Inc. to some extent that uh, led to kind of a reversion back to the standard conservative fights that you would have. And so you'd have the same people and at the grassroots or, you know, who woke up to Rick Santilli's rage, you know, with regard to one mortgage being paid and the other under the block not being paid. That was really part of the, the angst that created the Tea Party movement. And now that's directed somewhere else to kind of your normal conservative causes. I think the work that we're trying to do is a reflection and I, coming out of the administration that we felt like there needed to be a home, an institution that kind of got that and wanted to keep the fight where the grassroots actually was, mm -hmm. which just so happens, not shockingly, to be where the most important issues are for saving the country because people are seeing it. But yeah, I mean, the members, there's one of the, it's one of the reasons that I'm trying to go so hard as a budget propeller head, because I think I can help give them the confidence to know fiscally, this is a sound way to go about it. And it's better politically. And mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with stewarding your scarce political resources to be able to be most effective towards the cause. Um, and that will put us on the road to making sense financially for those of us who love spreadsheets. Yeah. One area where sort of they're, they're, the other side's sort of fake idealism uh, meets uh, and butts up against y'all's, I would say, effective pragmatism is that you know th th they'll claim that y'all's budget is not serious because it doesn't instantly completely fix our fiscal problem. Um, walk me through sort of the tactical uh, errors that people make there. It seems like it's it's very foolish to think we could solve it all at once. It took a long time to get here. It would take time to unwind it. How are you guys thinking through the timeline on winding down our, our, our deficit issue? So there's two types of arguments. Number one is art of the possible. Like, okay, you could put a budget together that balances within one year. That's ultimately something you and I could do over a long weekend. Not yeah. that hard. Yeah. It's just about the political trade-offs that you want to do. Everyone in this town is going to have a different art view of that being possible or not. Mm -hmm. And and what has typically been one that is a, a realistic is like, what do you need to do to get it there in 10 years? And I would love to do it in seven years or eight years. And I put forward a budget that allows you to balance in 10 without touching the benefits of Social Security or of, of Medicare. And my response to those who say, well, that's not realistic because you're not touching those and we have to touch those in the out years is to say, okay, what's your track record for them being enacted? <laughs> Anything you put in that's a change to those benefits, you may think it's good policy. It's not real. Yeah. So you're putting this massive plug in every one of your proposals that says trillions of dollars is going to come from these two things that we know the political system's not going to bear. So I've given you reforms, all of which I've defended publicly in the public eye, having been a part of four budgets for President Trump, uh, those have now been through a political cycle, a presidential cycle, and expounded upon them all. And I think here is a budget that get that is is aimed at the th most critical f threats to the country. But here's the th the last part I would just say: it's aimed at a Republican coalition. Like, why do we? The left has no interest in this. Why would we protect their programs? Why would we approach a program like or a department like HUD that wants to blow up single family neighborhoods and say? Well, 
this is just about affordability and efficiency. No, <laughs> it's actively harmful, and we're going to approach it from the moral ground, high ground of it being up, up, of it being that bad, and that's where we're going to start and finish the debate. And I think a Republican coalition can pass that kind of budget. And I think I'm being proven right by the fact that no one thought you could pass the McCarthy bill and all the moderates just did. Mm -hmm. So I think this has more of a path to success over the next several years and hopefully later this year. Uh, but, you know, the jury's out and I guarantee I'm going to have better results than the propeller head crowd that has put us in a political cul-de-sac of trying to cut Social Security and Medicare or nothing. Yeah. What are the five or six top line items? Where do most of your cuts come from? Most of our cuts are in Department of Education. Uh, Specifically, what are those dollars being spent on right now? Big grant programs being used to fund teacher improvement and um, nonprofits and NGOs to be able to um, do culturally responsive learning. Uh, foreign aid is big. So we're funding not just like, hey, our, you know, we, we have some interest in you having foreign military financing. We, we don't cut a lot of that. What we cut is the extent to which we're funding the gay pride event in Prague, mm -hmm. the LGBT activists in Senegal. And we wonder why they hate <laughs> us. We wonder why they hate us. Yeah. Uh, Because the nice Chinese guy is coming in saying, I'd like to build you a port with an interesting debt plan. Right. Like, you know, and, and instead we're funding the gay pride parade. And so uh, foreign aid, Department of Education, a lot of the, the bureaucracy at the Department of Health and Human Service and HUD, and that's really about 80% of your cuts. And those mm. are the main debates that I think is, COVID fascism, mm. it's, it's endemic to Centers for Disease, Center for Disease Control, NIH. You know, the, you look at CDC and you're expecting to have this public health agency, and then you find that we're funding all of these preventable diseases, uh, all sorts of education on sexually transmitted diseases, all mm. of which people know how to avoid. Mm. And we're, we're spending a tons of money on that. And that's what we want to get it's out of the business. It's of. basically an, uh, a Trojan horse to teach like seven-year-olds how to have like that's actually that's the what woke used for. part of what we're now funding. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it's it's amazing some of the stuff that gets just like multiple eight figure line items. One of Dan and I's favorites is a Havana syndrome. The federal government keeps on funding research into Havana syndrome, uh, even though the CIA has said multiple times it's not real. Um, there, there's there's a lot of legacy funding streams that just seem to go go nowhere. Um, rate. Speaker McCarthy for me, uh, has he been good? Has he been bad? How, how has he done so far in uh, in the four months that he's been speaker? He's been good. I, I think that I've said this publicly, like I think he's got a chance to be a historic speaker. It couldn't have been a bigger critic of him, but I think that he chose a path and he's on a path that I think could maximize the art of the possible and become his, historic. I think the jury is out as an execution uh, issue. And um, But as of right now, we're ending three or four doing so far so good so the most immediate case for that is the fact he was able to get this bill out of the house a couple of days ago uh what exactly was that bill what, what, where well, where is it in the process that. so it is that mm -hmm. but it's also things like releasing the tapes to tucker mm -hmm. making decisions that the cartel speaker or the cartel leader wouldn't make mm -hmm. that was a provocative decision mm -hmm. that we all think is a no-brainer mm -hmm. That wasn't a no-brainer, given where his members and particularly the Senate is. Yeah, um, it's things like that. It's passing uh, the immigration bill that they are are in the midst of right now. That's you know what we would be very very supportive of. Uh, it's governing from the right, 
And when you govern, you're going to have to get 218 or a majority. So it's not going to be nirvana, mm-hmm. right? But when you govern from the right, you're going to have it have a better shot of accomplishing your strategic objectives instead of let, uh, governing from the, the middle where you just divorce from your strategic objectives and the risk that is, is a part of politics. You can't, you can't de-risk politics unless you do nothing. Uh, it, we're, we would be in a situation where uh, the risk of something causes you to just not try at all. Yeah. What would you say to activists that justifiably so see any participation in the process with leadership as a sign of selling out? Because I imagine that there are going to be some members, uh, you know, Freedom Caucus members, deeply conservative ones who had a long history of opposing leadership who are now participating in the process. They're going to get a ton done this year. But then when they go back to their districts, their voters are going to say, you sold out to McCarthy. Do, do you think that's a real risk? And 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 how do you think we start to frame these discussions in a way for the base where they understandably, uh, having been concerned, maybe become less so? So my view has always been, if you're going to be in Washington but not of Washington, you need to embody what someone that doesn't part of Washington but would be you living your normal life would make the same viewpoints. Mm-hmm. So if there, if you, if someone had this, all right, your two week internship here in Washington D.C. and you're looking, you're like, man, that's corrupt. Yeah. And yet, you take a different view because you are living here, then you're part of the problem at that point. But if you came here and you're like, seeing all the constraints of of what could be done, and you're like, man, that that's a good deal. That's I'm not sure we could have gotten it, actually gotten a better deal. And that's where I got to in the speaker's fight is like, I don't think we would have gotten a better game-changing decision, even if someone like, uh, you know, a conservative were to get the speakership for various, you know, finite reasons. And I think when you have the ability to go back and say, look, if they would agree with you that we're trying to save the country and this was moving in that direction, then I don't think the conservatives have anything to worry about. If at any moment you're trying to, to spin your constituents because you don't really believe it and you're wrong, like we're all looking at the fact and we're like, you got, you got, you know, taken, then I think they've got a problem at that point. And I think we're here to help them sort through what could be accomplished and what can't. And we're all grounded in trying to save the country and being a part of what people are seeing. Um, you know, that angst of being up against this regime that we know um, would like to make any of us go away. And the only question is, can they do it at scale? Uh, that's what I think the, the the lateness of the hour has to be on these members. And if they're making decisions and they're picking fights with the lateness of the hour, uh, their constituents are going to support them. I promise them. What is the process over the next two to three weeks going to look like? Kevin McCarthy got this bill out of the House. What needs to happen now? Where's the establishment going to try to pull a fast one? What should people be paying attention to? The establishment is going to pull together, try to reconstitute the cartel. Mm -hmm. So they're going to try to bring in the Senate, try to get Senate Republicans to throw the House under under the, the bridge, over the bridge, uh, try to make it so that Senator Schumer is negotiating this, have some mass freak out to see whether Republicans in the House will bolt. All of that theater will happen over the next week and week and a half. And 
I think it's important to get through that and then to see where we are. But my expectation is that the White House will at some point realize the House is not moving and we've got to have a deal and they will move towards what on the terms of it is a very, very big package. But the framing of the of what was passed also aligns with past deals. So it's not like he couldn't agree to this. Mm. We're not asking him to go and, and overturn Obamacare, which has his name on it. Yeah. Okay. And I was a part of that fight. Right? It was a righteous fight. But that's not a part of this. It's it, These are all things that he could easily agree to. Not easily. He could agree to them. And whatever he agrees to will pass the Senate. So this notion that it has to get through the 60 votes is is true. It is also politically true that whatever Biden agrees to will get through 60 votes and get through the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's going to be a disruption in the markets caused by this? And and in that moment, nothing freaks out DC more than if Wall right. Street's upset. Like what's about to happen? Well, look, you know, the markets are, I think we've seen even in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, the extent to which uh, the market does not pay attention to both economic reality, the potential that inflation could come back. Um, they're very prone to looking at you know events through a prism of of, of volatility, and I think certainly something could happen. Uh, but uh, I think that Republicans also have now been through COVID. They've seen wild fluctuations. They know economic fundamentals of getting ahead of this. I don't think this is going to be a tarp-like situation where the the bill goes down and then they worry about the ATMs. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there will be a little bit more um, uh, hardened uh, resolve, particularly after a couple of months of, A, having passed a bill and also being cognizant of the fact that Biden can go out there at a press conference tomorrow and just say, well, the notion of any default is ridiculous. Uh, that's not on the table, not mm-hmm. in my administration or any other. One of the elements of this that that gets more exciting every day that passes is the development of muscle memory in in operating this way, right? Like it it was actually a big deal that that McCarthy bill passed last week. And you could imagine that if we get through this fight, having won real concessions from the Biden administration, you know, suddenly you've been able to graduate from lifting 100 pounds to lifting 150, lifting 200. What? What becomes possible down the line in this Congress if this executes well and properly? It's funny you mentioned that we hadn't talked about that, but I agree very uh, with you about the importance of that. Winning becomes possible. Yeah. We we have a culture of losing mm-hmm. on the right, uh, where we you know we have this notion of Don Quixote, and we'll be principled and lose. Yeah. And I want to win. Yeah. And well, you just said it. I mean, frankly, you said, you know, it was a righteous fight and we lost. It's like, I don't, a, a fight that we lose isn't, isn't interesting to me. It just right. never has been. So I want to win fights and we have the possibility of using leverage points with political risk, communicating through that risk to win a national debate and use the leverage point. And as you get these leverage points, here's what people don't realize. We have like three or four now. They can be created by the way that you go about your business. You can create leverage points if you are not f- afraid of the future use of those leverage points. And I think as as they go through these processes of winning, they're gonna be hardened that way. The other thing I would say is the degree to which 
these 20 have stepped into kind of being statesmen and you just see it the way they uh, the way they've kind of leaned into having gone through the fire it's like they're lions now and as those 20 become 30 and 40 and and hopefully you get a whole house republican majority there's a bunch of lions and you get 20 lions in the senate now we're really starting to have you know compound interest in statesmanship that will save the country yeah, having seen you know probably 10 freshman houses come in over your career what, do people understand like how big a cultural difference this freshman class like five members willing to step out in the way that they did i mean t tell me why it's such a big deal and when yeah so previously they would have lost mm -hmm. uh and then they would have lost their committees and then they're on the run this time they won and and now they've they're grounded in success and seeing what the art of the possible the institution tried to tell them one version of the art of the possible their constituents told them another version their constituents were right mm -hmm. and now they're not looking to to do anything other than to to stand on their behalf mm -hmm. and they're just awesome i mean uh anna paulina luna and eli and 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 andy ogles i mean these, these they're just awesome members yeah and there's more of them there was there's more of them too that i think saw what went on there and realized they were being lied to the the town was lying to them about the intent of these members they said it was just personal just anti kevin mccarthy uh it was loser you know failure theater and then you see what they accomplished and you're like i want to be a part of that yeah and i just know from having worked for some of these these guys you know once you get a taste of that kind of statesmanship and working a part of that i got to see it you know being an aide de camp for phil graham it just changes your view of what you can accomplish with with the authority that you're given and the stewardship to to use it effectively. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, or let me frame this differently, <coughs> how do we preserve and advance these gains next Congress? Because it, it was such an artifact of the the razor thin majority that we had, and in some ways the like particularly razor like it was like it might have been the case that if it was one more or one less that the entire dynamics would have been changed what what will need to happen for it to be simultaneously possible that republicans do better in the next election and also for this change in how things are done to remain they got to govern well they have to execute and so <clears throat> they have to think through and make good decisions and make sure that the conference believes this is a success. Mm -hmm. The conference can't think this is just, hey, this was a couple of members who wanted to be on the rules committee. They have to see the benefit of having their amendments made in order. That needs to be the enduring aspect of it. They need to see the benefit of winning debates on the floor that you never had before. And they're not easy debates. I'm not here to tell you that cultural issues are easy to debate. But I'm saying if the budget guy can do it, members of Congress who got themselves <laughs> elected can do it. And as they get confidence, all of this will be viewed as a success. Um, but those are execution issues. And those members need to, and those of us who support them on the outside need to execute as well. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot about the sort of tactical political attitude that, that CRA is trying to bring to these members to show them um, how to think about um, their jobs as, as members of Congress. But there's a whole nother side to, to what you guys are doing, which is the, the actual substance of what is being proposed. Uh, I think the issue that um, it's been most gratifying to watch you guys step out on has been foreign policy. 
what's that been like? <laughs> uh, what's it been like to be one of the few organizations that has actually taken a dissident view on foreign policy in this town um, and uh, to, to fight up against the, the legacy infrastructure that would try to put its thumb down on that as quickly as possible? I mean, it's the same ethos in terms of the, the left and the right will call you names. You're a peaser. You're an isolationist. You didn't learn the lesson from Munich. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> all the all of the paradigms go back to. Have you been called Neville Chamberlain yet? We have been called it. We've been called it all. Um, and so there's there's we we have a certain kind of hardenedness, having experienced that on other issues of being called names before. But you know, it it's it is so important. We don't have a school that exists that is developed with enough of the people that I know you are a part of raising up. Uh, that exist to be able to have these paradigm shifting foreign policies that honestly I think keep us safer as a country won't have us so exhausted won't have the rest of the world hating our guts um, and will is actually sustainable and you know I'd love what Dan's thoughts were but because he's been a part of building this movement for a long time and I'm glad he's taking his talents to to our organization the the foreign policy community here in DC is just there there is there is the good news is is that there's an increasing counter elite there's an increasing set of institutions that are willing to challenge the status quo and push back against you know this essentially um uniparty foreign policy that's existed uh, for the last 30 years with kind of a, a break occurring under the trump administration but in large part and this has become quite apparent during the Ukraine war is that that it is still decrepit it's still kind of like the the budget the so-called budget hawk community there's a lot of people just recycling the same old ideas not taking responsibility or being held accountable for their failures and and I think even worse is that a lot of them have just allowed themselves to become mouthpieces and bagmen for special interests and in a lot of cases foreign interests um, a lot of the foreign policy work you see coming out of institutions like the Atlantic Council, the Hudson Institute, uh, and others are essentially financed and paid for by foreign governments. And it's not just financed or paid for. A lot of cases, it's line edited by representatives of foreign embassies. So you have a group of so-called American foreign policy scholars that are prioritizing the interests of foreign governments in their work. And it's disgusting. So in my you know previous role at Stand Together is we were helping to build that counter league. We worked with groups like American Moments and Center for Newing America, but also organizations like Defense Priorities, the Quincy Institute, other organizations like that that were willing to, to challenge the status quo. And fortunately, there has been momentum there. But the the Ukraine war has revealed that the traditional foreign policy establishment still has a lot of power, still has unfortunately way too much influence on Capitol Hill, even if there has been progress. So that was a big reason why as well, I was excited to join Center for Newing America because they were willing to leverage their credibility in this fight, particularly among members on the right, where I think there's actually the most fertile ground to make progress at the moment. If I had to define the tactical center of gravity on realism and restraint, over the past 10 years, it was probably very intellectual and very academic. Um, where do you think the limitations of that approach have been being now in a very like tactical day-to-day -day grappling uh, kind of role with uh, what's going on in the Hill and presumably if we got a presidential administration would be going on there and, and what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so I, I think that for a long time, um, you had 
the the people that were solid on foreign policy they were dispersed they're limited in number and and i'll just be frank a lot of them are, are friends of mine but they almost developed a nihilistic view that their efforts were pointless uh there was a a um wall street journal editorial board writer who in 2004 right before george w bush was elected he effectively described the realism restraint movement as four or five guys in a phone booth from the Cato Institute and the American Conservative. <laughs> it's no longer four or five guys, thank thankfully, um, in you know a phone booth. It's it's a real movement with both people in the academic space and the think tank space and in the activist level. You know, when we have an activist call through our sister organization, Citizens for Newing America, almost every call Ukraine comes up. So this isn't a, a top. It's down. amazing to watch. Like you go to a yeah. local Tea Party meeting or a Republican club meet. Like this is something that the base cares about. And and I I think this gets to an important point is that there's a lot of conversation right now in D.C. Mm -hmm. about, you know, was the opposition to Ukraine aid driven solely by people like Tucker Carlson or President Trump? And I think there's is a lot of truth to that, but a lot of that was bottom up. It wasn't mm -hmm. top down, and it's because a lot of the communities were the activists on the right were coming from, those were the ones that were most impacted by our failed foreign policy over not just the last 20 years, but the last 30 years. So I think that's the key difference now is, is that you have an actual movement, you have an activist right that is more engaged on this, and that's created the conditions where we can actually make progress on this issue, particularly on the right. Keep, keeping in mind that from a language perspective, this is a family-friendly show. What is y'all's reaction to that quote that appeared in Axios from a Republican member of Congress saying that he's glad that well, Tucker Carlson's off the air? You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to probably edit this out. You told me not to to bang the table, but it, first of all, man up and put your name on it. Yeah. And you know, I'd say that too to the military officers. The, yeah, because the the Pen Pentagon yeah. officials and Republican members of Congress have been saying they're glad Tucker's gone. You know, you're a military officer. You're supposedly a, you know, I don't know this family friend. You're supposedly a bad <laughs> like, you know, special forces guy who's working in the Pentagon, probably plotting on how to give Azov battalion, you know, anti-tank missiles, but whatever. <laughs> um, and and you don't have the courage to put your name on on something. You know, at least Mitt Romney had had the had the guts to come out and say what he actually thought. But that ranting aside it was very revealing. And the fact that they weren't willing to put their name on it, I'm talking about the members of Congress, because they know it's not really just Tucker Carlson. Don't get me wrong, he was a hugely important voice on this. But they know it's a larger movement, and in a lot of ways, Tucker was reflecting where their constituents were on this mm -hmm. issue. So there's a lot of anonymous trash talking going on, but the fact that it's anonymous shows that they know that, you know, let's be honest, Tucker's still probably gonna have a voice in this, but it's more than just him. And I, I just I, you know, I have to say this is that to me, it is just absolutely pathetic that there are, you know, members of Congress that think that we should essentially march lockstep uh, with the Zelensky government, which is increasingly authoritarian, which is increasingly corrupt and increasingly reckless in how it persecutes the war. And a lot of these people actually didn't like Zelensky four or five years ago. He's like, oh, he was the peace candidate. He's this comedian like Jon Stewart. We shouldn't take him seriously. And now he's their hero. And I think that, that Tucker rightly reflected a lot of outrage at the fact that we had elected officials that are supposed to be putting American interests first, that were subordinating not just our interests, but our safety to the John Stewart of Ukraine. <laughs> and the fact that Tucker was willing to say that every night uh, and the fact that so many people were angered by it 
was a good thing and a reflective of where this debate is heading. Yeah. What is the corollary to the sort of propeller head approach on fiscal issues uh, in the foreign policy domain? You know, the 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 sort of naive idealism um, compared to sort of effective pragmatism. Like what what would the process of actually in a stepwise way starting to wind down some of our insane commitments abroad actually look like implemented through some of the work that you guys are doing and, and others are? Well, I think an example of this is a paper we put out a couple months ago. Um, uh, it was written with uh, uh, Sumantra Matra, who's a senior fellow of, of ours. I think you've had him on the show mm -hmm. before. Uh, it's basically our 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 uh, roadmap to the United States significantly reducing its commitment in Europe and pursuing what we call dormant NATO strategy. It's not cutting our security relationship with Europe, but it is recognizing that the current uh, structure, you know, the the current NATO structure, where the United States is still the primary security guarantor of a wealthy continent, is just no longer viable. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a roadmap to how you actually achieve that. And, and you do it by essentially the United States withdrawing almost all its troops, forcing Europeans to step up, mm -hmm. uh, maintaining a very narrow security relationship focused on, on protecting sea lanes and preserving a relationship, particularly with the nuclear powers, uh, France and UK. Mm -hmm. And those are the types of, of things that we're working on and producing. And there's a lot more of that. Uh, going on, I think, on the right, actual granular policy proposals, people like Bridge Colby, you know, with his work around how you pursue denial strategy in East Asia and others. It's the other side, the foreign policy elite that is not kind of just like with the budget fight is just recycling the same garbage they've been putting out for the last 20 years. And instead of, of reckoning with real issues, like, for example, the fact we have a defense industrial base that can't even produce enough shells to sustain the Ukrainian army. And and they'll you know saying how do we get to a place where we can actually replenish our stockpiles and prepare for a potential conflict with China, is instead you have you know so-called august foreign policy scholars just simply saying this is a matter of national will, this is a matter of of just simply turning up production and not actually recognizing with the somewhat scary reality that we can't just turn a knob, and like in World War II convert a typewriter factory and M1 Grand factory overnight, that this is going to be a long, drawn out process. We don't have typewriter factories anymore. We yeah. have an entire continent so, of email jobs. Exactly. And, you know, I just point out there's a story that recently came out, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, about how the United States in their efforts to ramp up shell production is we're already behind schedule because we don't have enough skilled labor. Uh, our infrastructure isn't enough. We don't have enough of the supply chains. So you have people... I think increasingly within our movement, they're coming up with ideas to reckon with that, to make serious trade-offs, where the other side, again, is hand-waving it away and just throwing out pablum about national will and you know global democracy and all this other garbage, and they aren't the serious ones. We are the ones that are taking these problems seriously and being realistic and sober about the world. You know, the, the delta between these two spaces is, is much shorter than it used to be, but you know, the world you come from, Dan, of sort of realism and restraint world and uh, the world you come from, Russ, you know, conservatism, uh, the conservative movement, we're, we're always kind of two separate places. What's been the attitude inside sort of the professional conservative movement on this alternative view of foreign policy? Um, 
practically speaking, like what, what are you dealing with on a day-to-day basis in terms of hostility or is everyone on board? Um, talking about DC specifically here. I don't think everyone's on board. I think mm-hmm. there's kind of <clears throat> one camp that wants to take the Trump phenomena and manage it into kind of uh, safe neoconservatism, which is we're not for regime building, but we're for being everywhere in the su- under the yeah. sun. Yeah, we're only for smart wars. Okay, what's a dumb war? Right. Uh. <laughs> so that's kind of one view yeah. that, you know, uh, I think is malign that I think just needs to be challenged consistently with wedge issues to say mm-hmm. that's not yeah. that's not what we mean by it. And then there's others, which I think are very, very open to this new movement, but want us to answer the question, will it keep us safe? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's helpful to c- come to some extent, not from the libertarian side uh, that comes from it from the standpoint, I think there are real international threats, uh, particularly if those states are exporting uh, their ideology. I think they're, you know, when you come at it from the standpoint of that national security, I think you get the America first perspective, which is you got to stay strong, but you got to be very, very strategic about what you're going to fight about. Mm-hmm. And you and you want to be inclined towards peace mm-hmm. uh, because anything but peace has massive, unfortunate uh, consequences for the country, even if you're successful. Mm-hmm. And so that I think we have an open dialogue with that we're slowly winning people over. And you're seeing that in some of these stories about the movement in the in the space w- uh, on issues like Ukraine and things like that. And our our goal will be to keep the wedge issues going on that side of it to say you know it it's not just about Ukraine it gets to mm-hmm. the 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 fundamental nature of our relationship with NATO and the extent to which it has constantly gone eastward the extent to which it's been preoccupied with Russia which mm-hmm. is nowhere near what it was as a threat under Soviet Union and could largely be borne by the Europeans and the extent to which they don't seem to care should tell you something about the threat. So those are the kinds of questions that on both sides, we're going to still be pushing new paradigms Mm -hmm. and wedge issues to be able to get to a new consensus that we think hopefully is something that the entirety of right of the right will identify with. It'll be the new version of what conservatism is. I've learned a ton from from both of you uh, over the years in terms of how things actually work in dc and to to abstract that advice more out you know people who who understand the process in dc to you know some of these new right guys that are coming to town what is uh what's the what's the fresh off the presses piece of advice in terms of things that are likely to become emergent issues or, or items of concern in the next one to two years that you would encourage uh you know uh my my cadre of insane zoomers to maybe think slightly differently about I don't know if I have a good answer. What I'm most concerned about um, of the issues that I don't think we necessarily have uh, definitive policy proposals to on on the big ticket issues is in in the area of technology. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the right uh, grip on the putter for dealing with some of these industries of the future? And, uh, you know, obviously there's 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 a lot of things that we need to be scared about but what what are what are we doing to be do we have enough people who understand technology to know what to do about that uh that's one that is uh on my mind that is not your normal conservative issue that is easy to you know i'm against central bank digital concerns currency that one's easy yeah 
that's like the 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 like one percent like boomer line you can kind of throw it out in there but that's not the be all end all yeah. of anything dan i think and this is one of the issues why i really want to join center for new america is the weaponization of the federal governments uh, particularly our security state against the american people um it is you can't overstate how just decrepit and corrupt our uh, domestic and foreign intelligence agencies, our federal law enforcement agencies are, is that there are deep systemic issues within all these institutions that incentivize them going after conservative Americans. And it is going to be one of the most critical fights over the next couple of years. And if we get an America first president in 2025, I think it's going to be one of the most important fights within the first 100 days is getting that beast under control, bringing it to heel as much as possible. Because if the next, you know, America first president um, doesn't do that, you're going to have a repeat of the first term of the the, the, whole, the first uh, first Trump administration, um, where you're going to have nothing but, you know, Russia hoax after Russia hoax, Russian bounties. Remember that one? Um, the Ukraine impeachment nonsense. It is going to inhibit the ability of that administration to advance an America first agenda. And I think that is something that anybody coming to Washington, whether you're going to work as an L.A. or an L.C. in a congressional office, whether you're going to work at at a conservative institution, you need to get up to speed on and you need to, to learn a lot about. We have a great FBI fellow at, at Center for New America, Steve Friend. I really encourage people to listen to a lot of his interviews and, and read what He's written, he's actually opened my eyes in a way that's really honestly scared the crap out of me in some ways about what is actually going on within institutions like the FBI, the DHS. It is an enormous problem and it's it's not something that we can sleep on. And that's why it's it's important this weaponization committee that Jim Jordan is chairing is successful and that we even go beyond that. And we look at 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 uh, fighting things in appropriations, looking at ways that the next uh, America First president can rein it in through statute, as opposed to waiting on the uh, uh, you know next Congress to pass one. I think that is is after the debt limit one of the most critical fights that we have. You guys might end up having slightly different takes on this, just given your background. But um, how relatively optimistic are each of you that some of the reforms, specifically of of the security state, could be bipartisan? You know, if you would have asked me this a year ago or a year and a half ago, I would have been optimistic. I would have talked about this right-left alliance that that you know could have come together and and um, really reform things. I'm very pessimistic now. I think that um, the the left has come to view the FBI as their people and basically their muscle in effect, and there's not, you know the type of suspicion of the security state that existed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even up to 90s and early 2000s uh, on the left that, that, you know, again, that there once was. And I'm, I'm unfortunately very pessimistic about that, but I think that's a mistake on, on their end because I think that, you know, things could shift in the same structures that are in place right now that could be weaponized, that are being weaponized against conservatives could once again be weaponized against the left. But you know, you have to accept the world as it is. And I, I just don't see that bipartisan possibility at the moment. Yeah, no chance. I mean, I just, think that <laughs> I, you know, I just, you look at the, t the culture, uh, 
mainstream sitcoms have three different FBI channel on the you know, shows. Uh, everything that's predominant right now is glorifying espionage and and the national security apparatus. The paradigms that these people are operating under is is that they're protecting national security against our our, our uh, American people across the country who live between the coasts and. I, I just don't I think they understand that at their at their political level as well. The FBI's literally an organization six years ago tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself. <laughs> and and they are now held up essentially almost on the same level as them. And and in some ways the FBI knows that when they do their Martin Luther King posts every Martin Luther King day. <laughs> um it, it, it's it's a sad state of affairs. I I for a long time and you see it, unfortunately, in foreign policy. I would have hoped there would have been more of a right-left alliance around stopping escalation in, in Ukraine. You don't even have Bernie Sanders voting against um, more Ukraine aid. And and that's just a sad reflection, I think, of, of the political left at the moment. Gentlemen, where can people keep up with everything that you guys are doing? And specifically for the uh, people in our audience that are either Hill staffers or, or directly involved with stuff on the Hill day to day. Uh, what should they be coming to you guys for in these coming weeks um, as as this debt ceiling fight reaches its apogee? Uh, more content on where these cuts will actually be made, could be made, um, detail as to how we're thinking about different things. They can get us at, at Russ Vote or AmericaRenewing.com or in your, your social media. Yeah, um, at Dan D. Caldwell. Um, we have a lot of fun as an organization on Twitter and, and <laughs> social media sites like Getter. Um, but I I think that if you go to our website and you look at the policy products that we have on there is that they don't just make the policy case. They offer a roadmap to actually how you do them. And of course, feel free to reach out to us as well, too. If you're a Hill staffer, policy staffer, we'd love to talk to you and support you in every, uh, whatever way we can. Yeah, as a Zoomer with the attention span of a goldfish, I will say your house style on on white papers is the most legible house style in all of Washington. Um, it's actually very readable while being detailed and interesting and not just like an extended op-ed, which is what white papers feel like these days. So thank you guys for everything that you do. Uh, and we're looking forward to seeing you guys continue to keep winning and have the haters and losers keep on losing <laughs> over the course of the next few years. Thanks for having us. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. Um, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast as well as everything else we have cooking. We've got features written on a variety of issues, including some of the ones that we uh, have discussed here. Those are assemblages of a ver variety of you know YouTube episodes, podcasts, books, essays, uh, news links, Twitter threads on uh, specific issue areas. Um, keep an eye out for any programs that we have upcoming events that we're doing. Sign up for our mailing list. Uh, kick in some cash at americanmoment.org slash donate in general stay up to date with everything that we're doing it's shaping up to be a very exciting summer for us and we're uh, just honored to be able to do what we do every day including being on i don't know jillion episodes of this podcast well over 100 um uh, you know over 200 hours of content floating around out there it feels like uh thank you guys as always for listening we really do appreciate it be sure to rate and review this podcast five stars only we crossed 150 reviews recently actually someone wrote something really nice i'll pull it up here and read it for you guys um i i, I can't help but wonder if it's like one of our friends but i have no idea um this is from cornerstone uh the review is keep fighting it's five stars on apple podcast and it it goes as such. 
A creator of the universe, 90 plus billion light years big and growing, does nothing by chance. Each of you at American Moment were born and are alive at this moment in time for a very special reason and purpose. Continue to follow your conscience and fight for our republic. Quote, do not be afraid. God is with you. You were born for this, unquote, St. Joan of Arc. It's very cool. Keep the fight. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.